0: You know what, I'll get started. It's nine o'clock and we'll just begin with a prayer. Yeah. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for another wonderful day. Your mercies and your grace, they are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for being a God who's designed an end that will be a blessing for your people. We pray, Lord, that you would keep our minds focused on the promises to come so that we would persevere in this dark age. Lord, Enable us to see these great promises and how you're faithful, even when we're faithless. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, for those of you that haven't been coming, I think most of us in here have been here. Jim's been out of the loop for a little bit. Welcome back, Jim Palmer. Uh, It's kind of old home week here this week, so that's fun to see you. We have been in Revelation chapter 12, which is all about a history of how Satan has tried to wipe out God's seed. And when I define seed, I defined it in a corporate sense, both the Messiah and Israel that gave us the Messiah. So if either Israel or Messiah perishes, God's promises are done. So in Revelation chapter 12, we see a purview of all of history in which Satan has tried to wipe out the promises of God. And what we see is that God is going to be faithful to preserve Israel, not just before the coming of Christ, but also after. And so we left off in This passage here, Revelation 12, verses 12 through 14, let me read it again so we get some context. John wrote this, he said, For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child." But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So now recall last time we saw that heaven is rejoicing over the expulsion of Satan, but notice the contrast, woe to those who are on the earth. And we said that we have a modal participle in that When Satan descends, he has great wrath. And that means he's very angry because he's been expelled from heaven. And he is going to pour his wrath, thumos, upon Israel. Now, thumos, we said, is slightly different than orge, the term that's normally used for wrath. It has to kind of do with more of an irrational, fly-off-the-handle kind of anger. And so we talked a little bit about the distinction between God's wrath Which is never capricious, it's always well reasoned, and it's always deserved, and Satan's wrath, which is irrational. Fly off the handle. We even talked about some examples, even in our culture, of God-ordained wrath versus the wrath of man. All right? Now, I want you to see that one of the reasons Satan is so angry is notice in the text in verse 12, in red, it says he only has a short time. And what I want you to understand is that should be seen in red as synonymous with the phrase that's highlighted in red down in verse 14, a time, times, and half a time. So the short time that Satan has is synonymous with the great tribulation period, the last three and a half years. We have to see that connection. Now, what's interesting is in the Bible, this period is called a short time because evidently God had shortened it For the sake of the elect, and we see evidence of that in the Olivet discourse that was preached by Jesus to his disciples. In fact, turn your Bibles there to Mark 13, verses 19 through 20. Again, Mark 13, verses 19 through 20. And again, I want you to see that this time period that Jesus refers to as being shortened, I think, is synonymous with the short time or the three and a half years that you see being discussed here in Revelation 12. So again, Mark 13, verses 19 through 20. I'll just give everybody a moment to turn to that. Mark 13, 19 through 20, notice Jesus says, for those days, he's talking about the future 70th week of Daniel, specifically the last three and a half years, he says, for those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will. Now, in verse twenty, notice what he says. He says, "Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days." Now, the reason I mention this idea of shortening is there is a movement afoot in evangelicalism today called the pre-rath view, and in this view, they say that imminence in the scriptures as to when we don't know Jesus is coming, that sort of idea, is caused by the shortening of the Great Tribulation to something less than three and a half years. But as I'm going to be showing you in this message, that's not warranted. What we see is the Great Tribulation is always depicted as being synonymous with three and a half years. And so you would have to modify a lot of biblical verses to say that the Great Tribulation is somehow going to be less Than three and a half years. So, what we can see in God's providence is that He shortens the Great Tribulation to the three and a half years for the sake of the elect. Okay, that's the same time period that I think we see here. Now, notice when the dragon comes down, remember that's Satan, and he's persecuting the woman, and the woman is Israel. Well, how does Israel survive? Well, we see in verse 14 that two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. Now, when two wings of an eagle are given to Israel, what does that bring to our minds as readers of Scripture? It brings in the Exodus. Remember in Exodus 19.4, God at Sinai with his people says, I brought you, Israel, to myself on the wings of a great eagle. And so the idea of the wings of the eagle presupposes the power, the omnipotence of God, and the swiftness in which he can save. Have anyone ever seen an eagle do something? They're not an awkward creature, are they? No. They're powerful, swift, and graceful. And it's in that way that God can save His people. Why? Because He's the Holy One of Israel. He's Yahweh. There's never been a greater warrior than the Holy One of Israel. Amen. And He's powerful to save. And that's the God that you have trusted in. So you and I aren't believing in some marshmallowy little Jesus but the resurrected Lord, who's the king of all and who's powerful to save. Now, turn to your Bibles. I want to show you this theme that God saves like an eagle. It's all over the scriptures. Turn to the song of Moses that we see recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Specifically, we'll look at Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 11. Again, Deuteronomy 32, verses 10 through 11. This is Moses recounting the salvation of God. And he likens it during the Exodus to God taking the people of Israel out on the wings of an eagle. So, in a sense, then, the last Exodus occurs when? In the Great Tribulation. And so, the history of Israel is bracketed by an Exodus. They begin with an Exodus, and it ends with an Exodus. We can think of it in that way. Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11 Moses said about Yahweh, he says, quote, He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the people pupil of his eye. Now stop there. Does everyone know what that phrase people of the eye means? The, yeah, it's it's the part of your eye that if it's taken out you can't see. And what's very interesting is the ancients, especially those in the Mideast, were accustomed to sandstorms. In fact, I was just reading a book about fighter pilots flying during the first Gulf War, and they had sandstorms where it would reduce the visibility to zero. And so these sandstorms, if you were caught out in them and you didn't protect your eye, you were blinded. Okay, So your pupil was absolutely essential for your survival. You had to protect it. And it's in that way, then, that God is guarding Israel, they are the pupil of his eye, and he will guard them at all cost. Why? Because if he doesn't, his promises are over. Did he not promise that Messiah was going to come from Israel? Yes. Did he not promise that one day he was going to save all Israel? We see that in Romans eleven twenty-six. Yes. So God is faithful to his promises. Now, continue. Verse 11, he says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The pinions are these feathers on the outside of the the wing. So he's so powerful. The depiction is he can fly with Israel upon his wings. That's power. Yeah.
1: I'm thinking that in that same vein, isn't that what uh, God does for each and every one of his elect? Amen. You know, the checks in
0: the mail, Brian, Great segue. I was going to actually talk about that very thing. Thank you for playing along. We didn't plan this, by the way. (laughs) Free cup of coffee. Very good. In fact, I want to turn us to that very concept that God does this in a sense for every single believer, that he protects every one of us in that way. And we see evidence of that. Yes, it's related to Israel, but it's related to all Jews and Gentiles who will trust upon Messiah. Turn your Bibles to see this in Isaiah 40, verses 30 through 31. Again, Isaiah 40, verses 30 through 31. Now, as you're turning there, let's do a little reminder of the layout of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, all the way to chapter 48, verse 22, the subject is the servant of Yahweh, but even more particular, it's the Lord Yahweh of the servant. Okay, so there's a depiction of Yahweh and his servant who's going to be the Messiah. In Isaiah 40, all the way through chapter 48, verse 22, the focus is on the Lord who commissions the suffering servant. Okay? So, specifically, when we get into verses 40, verse 27, all the way to verse 31, that I'm going to be reading from, we see that Yahweh is worthy of all trust. Why? Because He's powerful to save. Right? Because He can bring Israel out on the wings of an eagle. So, turn, again, to verse 30 of Isaiah 40... And notice it says, though youths grow weary and tired, invigorous young men stumble badly. Stop there. What Isaiah is describing by the inspiration of the Spirit is the normal course of affairs. Isn't it even true in this life that even young men get tired? Even men like Bo Jackson, the famous football player, get injured? Even those in their prime grow weary. But what's interesting is now we see a contrast between what's the normal course of affairs that even men and women in their prime are going to grow tired in this world. Now the contrast is with those who end up trusting in the Messiah, Yahweh and His servant. Verse 31, it says, yet. And in Hebrew, there's a vav, a consecutive vav which shows a, con- a contrast. Okay. Yet, He says, those who wait... For Yahweh will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Now, notice in verse 31, where he says that those who wait for Yahweh, the term wait there in Hebrew is kavah. Now, kavah has to do not with just killing time, as if you're sitting in front of your local drugstore whittling away on a stick just waiting for something to happen no it's a confident living expectation of what God will do and so those who are going to rise up on wings like eagles are those who have confident trust in the power of Yahweh they're not just killing time but they live a life of confident expectation in the promises of God no matter what they see and so, ultimately, in the eschatological age, it's those people who will never grow weary. Why? Because they're going to live resurrected lives. They're going to have the resurrection. They're going to have eternal life. They're going to reign with Messiah forever and ever. That's why. And so, brothers and sisters, let me just ask you, as dark as the world is, do you have kava? Do you have yes. the mindset where you confidently are living in expectation that this Yahweh can save? And that's exactly... What your point was, Brian? This isn't just for Israel, it's for all of God's elect. Because we know in Isaiah that God brings both Jews and Gentiles to saving faith in Messiah. Now, there's another passage we could turn to. I'll just have you write it down for future reference. Another one that talks a lot about this being saved by Yahweh as he's like an eagle is Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4. So you can write that down. For the sake of time, we won't read that. But again, Psalm 91, verses 1 through 4. Now, Back to this idea. Notice at the bottom in verse 14, we see the times, time, and half a time. That's three and a half years. The time would be one. Times is two. You add that together, you have three. And then you have the half. That's three and a half years. What I want you to understand is that throughout Scripture, beginning in the book of Daniel, we see an emphasis on this last three and a half year period. And I think it's significant enough to pay attention to that because it keeps reoccurring. Anytime you see a theme that reoccurs throughout the Bible, I think it behooves us to take special note of it. So let me just kind of summarize the data. I want to go through the passages that talk about this three-and-a-half-year window, and then we're going to do some implications of what that may mean for us here today. Now, first of all, the first reference that we see to this great tribulation period, the last three-and-a-half years, is found in Daniel 7. Now, recall in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four kingdoms that come up out of the sea. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the sea today if we have time, but the sea represents two things. First of all, the abyss, where Satan rules and reigns. But because Satan uses the nations, the goyim, for his purposes to try to usurp Yahweh, the sea also sometimes represents the nations. So, in Daniel 7, he sees four kingdoms that come up out of the abyss. And listen to what he says. Daniel seven twenty five. this is skipping down a ways. He talks about this final kingdom before the coming of the Messiah that's going to be the kingdom of the Antichrist. And of this Antichrist, he says, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for times, time, and half a time. Stop there. That's exactly what we're reading about in Revelation 12. That, in fact, in Revelation 12 and 13, Satan is going to use this Antichrist to try to wear down the saints. But notice the emphasis on time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. The same thing we saw in Revelation 12. We see it again in Daniel 9, 27. Talking of Antichrist, notice it says, "...and he..." will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now stop there. The first thing we have to define is who is this one that makes a covenant with the many for one week? We know it has to be Antichrist and not Christ. For the simple reason that can anyone lay out for me when it is that Jesus Christ made a covenant that only lasted seven years? Is not the new covenant called the eternal covenant? Well, of course. And so in, even in the context, if you read Daniel 9.26, actually 9.25 all the way down to 9.27, the context makes it very clear grammatically that the Antichrist is the antecedent. So clearly this is the Antichrist. He's going to make a covenant with the many, that's Israel, for one week. Now the other thing we have to define is how do we know that that half, which is seven, is seven years rather than seven days, seven weeks, seven months? We know because Daniel tells us in Daniel 9.2, that he's referring back to Jeremiah's prophecy. So turn, if you will, to Daniel 9.2. I want to show you to prove that we know that he's talking about years. Okay? Because you're going to read scholars, and you'll see other teachers online that will claim, well, these people who are futurists, who believe these things in Revelation are still coming. They read into Daniel the idea that one week is seven years. No, we're not reading into it. We're being readers of what the text actually says. Okay, notice Daniel 9 2. Daniel's laying out this 70 weeks prophecy with this preface. He says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the number of the years, notice the term years, does everyone see that? Which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years, okay? Now, where does that come from? Well, and you just jot this down, Jeremiah 25, 11, Jeremiah prophesied that Israel, because of their idolatry, would be in captivity for 70 years. So Daniel tells us up front that he's using the denomination, not of months or of days or hours, but he's using years. So that's why we know one week is seven years, Now, let's continue then in Daniel 9, 27. Notice he says, but in the middle of the week, so this would be the three-and-a-half-year mark, he, this is the Antichrist, will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. I don't know if you can tell what I have bolded here, but notice the abominations that will come that makes desolation. That's literally how it reads in Hebrew. That's what the Antichrist does. And ultimately, he does that by setting himself up in the temple as God. Yeah, Jim. Well, oh, In fact, we've got to get the mic on you. So, yeah, anything you say can and will be held either for you or against you. Well, in Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, he specifically refers to this. There are a lot of people that try to attack Daniel or put a different interpretation on it. Jesus quoted it. Thank you. Exactly. Checks in the mail, Jim, because that's going to be coming. Exactly right. Well said. Yeah, free coffee for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> very, very well said. Exactly. So Jesus is going to reference that, and he's going to show that this happens in the future. You see, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, he was a Seleucid ruler. Okay, let's back up in, a little bit in history. Do you remember when the Greeks come to power under Alexander the Great? Well, when he dies, I think it's 323 B.C., his kingdom is broken into four parts. One of those parts is called the Seleucids. It's a Syrian dynasty. Well, they take control of much of the Holy Land. And there was a wicked ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He has a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist does. He actually sets himself up in the temple. But what's very interesting is that happens in 167 B.C. Jesus quotes the abomination of desolation, as Jim just mentioned, as something that's going to be in the future. Well, when Jesus is saying that, it's about 33 AD. Notice that's much after 167 BC. Now, what's interesting, in 70 AD, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, yes, they sacked the temple, but they never set anyone up who claimed to be God in the temple. And therefore, this could not be fulfilled by the 70 AD destruction. Okay, that's why we know Jesus is referring to the future time period. Okay, is that clear? Anyone have any questions on that? Because I'm glad you brought that up, and we'll come to that on the next slide. Okay, so that's the abomination that causes desolation. Now, let's keep going in order here. Daniel 12, 7, and again, I'm just showing you how many times this three and a half years comes up. Daniel 12, 7 here, Daniel sees a vision given to him again by this angel. He says, I heard the man, this is the angel, dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river. As he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by Him who lives forever that it would be, this is the distress of Israel, for time, times, that's three, and half a time, that's three and a half, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So notice that's the end. Again, three and a half years. Now, to Jim's point, yes, Matthew twenty-four fifteen, Jesus here, by way of recapitulation, brings us back in verse 15 of Matthew 24 to the midpoint of the tribulation. And notice what he says. He says, therefore, when you, that's Israel, see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then he says, parenthetically, let the reader understand. Now stop there. As a careful reader of Scripture, we should understand this is in the future, and we know it's not fulfilled in 70 A.D., There was never anyone who set themselves up as God in the temple. Therefore, it's still in our future, all right? He says, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, this shows us the Israel-centric nature of eschatology. Remember, you and I as the church were grafted into the promises of Israel, not the other way around, okay? The reason I say that is notice he says, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. I make a little quip about this. How do you and apply you and I apply this as the church? When it says those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains, do you and I in Minnesota flee to Buck Hill or Spirit (laughs) Mountain? Because see, there are those who say if we attribute this to Israel, then we're saying it's not applicable for the church. Well, I would react against that, and I would say yes, this is applicable to the church. The question isn't whether it's applicable to the church or not applicable to the church. The question is, how is it applicable to the church? And this is what I would say. This applies to you and me, because as we read Jesus' words, knowing that we will not be in this time period, we can smile from ear to ear, because we know that God is faithful to what? His promises. And when we see that God is faithful to His promises to bring about all that He has spoken through the prophets, what does that give us? It gives us joy and confidence even in this dark age so that you and I can persevere unto the end isn't that a wonderful application does it always have to be something that we do or can it be something that we believe and I'm saying it's primarily the latter that's how it applies to you and I today so you and I aren't called to run to Buck Hill we're called to live with Kavah confident expectation and trust in the Holy One of Israel Okay, so again, the abomination of desolation that you see in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, that's three and a half years. That's a backhanded or a, a sly way of bringing in the three and a half years once again. Okay? Now, let's keep going. Revelation eleven two, we saw the reference again. Here, John is talking about the measuring out of the temple, and we talked about how measuring the temple was a way in which God showed that his favor had not departed or maybe a better way of saying it is his favor had returned to the people of Israel. Revelation 11:2 2, it says, Leave out the court, that is from the measurement, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread it under foot, the holy city, for 42 months. So for 42 months, it's given over to the nations. So 42 months is how long? Well, that's three and a half years, isn't it? We see the same thing again that we just read today. Now, you don't have to read this. That's what we've just read, Revelation 12. But notice again. 1,260 days times time and half a time, it's three and a half years. It's being emphasized. We're going to see it again in Revelation thirteen five. This is the future tribulation with the Antichrist. It says there was given to him, the Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for how long? 42 months was given to him. Well, that's three and a half years. So three and a half years is over and over and over and over again. And so here's the question. Are there any implications to this? And I would say yes. The first implication that I would say is that this means that this whole passage in eschatology is Israel centric. Now, why do I say that? Well, notice in Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 30 is very important because it has to do with God's promise to restore both Israel and Judah, to bring them back together again in both faith and obedience well, this is a promise that's never been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in the future. And notice he says, and by the way, Jeremiah 30 blends into Jeremiah 31, which is about what? The new covenant. That Israel is going to be a partaker in the new covenant as well. Jeremiah 30, verse 7. So he says, alas, for that day, that's the future day of the Lord, is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of the church's distress, the time of the world's distress, The time of the Gentiles' distress? What time? It's the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. Now, Jacob, the term means heel grabber, doesn't it? Because he was the promised child that Yahweh had promised to give the promises to. And he tried to usurp the promises that was given normally to the firstborn Esau. And so Jacob is known as the heel grabber, the usurper. But in Genesis 32, he wrestles with God, and his name is changed to what? Israel. El is God. He's the one who contends with God. Or God, maybe the better way to say it, is God contends with him. And so Israel is the one that this passage is all about. This is the time of Israel's distress. That's what's being talked about. So remember again, according to the New Covenant, Romans chapter 11, Paul says you and I have been grafted into them, not the other way around. Now, there's a very important implication to the 70 weeks prophecy that I want Jim Palmer to describe. Jim gave a great quote one day to me that I never forgot. And it's a way that you and I should think about the 70 weeks weeks prophecy in Daniel. Explain what you said to me. Well, what I said to you several years ago was, I didn't see the church in the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. Why would I expect to see it in the 70th? <laughs> that is say it again. I didn't see the church in the first 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. Why would I expect to see it in the 70th? And then I think I also mentioned to you about Noah and his family going into the ark. Yes. Noah and his family weren't put on the ark mid-flood. They weren't put on the ark post-flood. They went on the ark (laughs) pre-flood. Yes. Lot wasn't removed post-Sodom and Gomorrah. Mid-Sodom and Gomorrah, it was... Lot and his family removed pre-Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction. Exactly right. So what Jim's laying out for us is this is Israel-centric. That's very important. Dear brothers and sisters, if you and I have been grafted into the promises of Israel, can we not rejoice that God is going to be faithful? You see, me as a Gentile living in Minnesota, and you as Gentiles living in Minnesota, you're in a pagan nation. And what Yahweh has done is he's wrestled you out from the dominion of Of Satan, This is what Bob has been teaching us. Remember, he has people who will call him and email him saying, I'm concerned about demons. And they want him to do an exorcism. I'm trying to save Bob's voice, otherwise he'd speak for himself. But Bob says, you're thinking too small. The moment you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you've been delivered from one domain to the other. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of what? The beloved son, Colossians 1, 13 through 14. So you and I are being taken out of the goyim, the nations, and we're being prepared for this kingdom that's coming where? It's not coming to Minneapolis. It's coming, well, it will, but it's coming primarily to, what, Israel. That's the headquarters is the point. It's going to be a worldwide dominion and kingdom, but the headquarters isn't Moscow. Headquarters isn't Minneapolis. It's Jerusalem, just as God had promised. And so we should be zealous for that. Now, the other thing I would point out is notice this is the worst time period ever, and that's important for our our interpretation of revelation. Notice what it says in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. The prophet, hundreds of years prior to the coming of Christ, says there's none like it. There's not a single tribulation period that will ever be like this. Now, remember how many times have I said you can't have the worstest, right? You can have something that's worse than another thing, and you can have the worst thing, but you can only have one worst. You can't have the worstest. So Jeremiah is saying that there's none like this. This is the worst time period ever. Well, dear ones, that's exactly what Jesus stated. And is it all of it discourse? So the, all of a discourse is about Jacob's distress. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 24, 21. I want to show you the link between Jeremiah 30, verse 7, and what Jesus is saying. This is the worst time period. It's the worst that will ever come. Matthew 24, 21. Jesus says, for then, that's in this future day of the Lord, in the last three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. Remember, mentioned six verses earlier. He says, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Stop there. It doesn't get any worse than that. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, what did you and I study in Revelation in the opening chapters chapter 6 for example at the fourth seal we see the earth lost a third of its population or excuse me a quarter of the population a quarter of the earth dies in Revelation chapter 6 at the fourth seal when you get to the fifth trumpet judgment we see that a third of the earth perishes if you put that together I did the fractions in my mind the other day I got to get ready for Will's math so I had to review fractions right well the last time I looked that up that's more than a half more than half of the earth's population has perished. Now, when you get to Revelation chapter 19, all of the world's armies are going to gather around Jerusalem and they are all going to perish, that is, the armies. Well, now, more than likely because of the huge nature of the armies and all the fact that Jesus wipes them all out, you're probably close to three-quarters of the earth's population is destroyed. Let me ask the question, when did that happen in 70 A.D.? There are people that are partial preterists who say, you know what, these are full preterists who say these things happened in 70 AD. Well, really? Well, that escaped, I think, the historian's attention. You would think if three-quarters of the Earth's population died, some because of a demonic army being unleashed from the abyss, maybe a historian or two may have noted that. Now, why I'm showing you that is it shows the absurdity of preterism. Preterism is one of the schools of interpretation of the book of Revelation, saying all these things occurred in 70 A.D. Now, why is that important? Because if you go to a community Bible study, I was part of one for years, or a BSF, and you study the book of Revelation, they'll toss their hands up in the air and they'll say, well, who can really know? We're not going to dive into the details of how these things are fulfilled. And it's this postmodern idea that, well, who can really know the truth? Well, yes, we can know the truth. Dear brothers and sisters, think of another view where people try to interpret... Revelation, as a historist. In other words, they say all these things in Revelation occurred during the church age. Really, when in the history of the world has three quarters the earth perished as we have seen described? Yeah, well, exactly, but the flood is always seen as prior to the advent of Christ, right? So these things are after Christ. We've never seen that. You're exactly right. And the flood is held up as an example of cataclysm that will come and the people of God that are spared. But you're right. We've never seen these things. Before, So, dear brothers and sisters, the reason I'm laboring this point is we don't want to break fellowship over eschatology with another believer, but at the same time, I don't want you to ever lose your confidence to say, well, you know, this good teacher is a preterist, and this one's a historist, this one's an idealist. An idealist says, well, revelation can't be taken seriously at all. What you and I have to know is that we can know. We can know what it says. Why? Because we just simply read as the author intended intended it to be understood. And if we just take it for what it says, we come to a futurist interpretation. And you can be confident because therefore you know that God has laid out the future for you and there are no surprises for the people of God. God will be faithful to his promises. Okay, so for the sake of time, we better keep going here. Now we see that Satan makes war against the 144,000, at least that's my contention. I'll talk about the issues here. Revelation 12:15 through 17. It says and the serpent, John says, poured out, excuse me, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, remember the woman is Israel, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, one of the interpretive issues here in this passage, notice in verse 15, we have to wrestle with in what way does the serpent, that Satan, pour out water? And we really have two choices before us. We can take this literally which is certainly a viable option. Perhaps there's literally a flood that Satan uses in the attempts to wipe out Israel. But the other way that we can take this is in a figurative sense. Now, remember, we always want to take things plainly in Revelation unless we see evidence that there's a simile, that it's used as a metaphor, or there's an allusion to the Old Testament. So if this is an allusion to the Old Testament, then we might take this figuratively. Now, remember, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. Do you remember how many are, have allusions to the Old Testament? 278 of those 404. So right away, we should be predisposed to say, maybe there's an allusion to the Old Testament, and I think there are. First of all, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 46. What I'm going to show you is that oftentimes in the Old Testament, a flood of water was a likened to the work of a great army, or the great, a great army was a likened to a flood. Okay, And sometimes the work of Yahweh as the destroyer is likened to a flood. And there are many passages that allude to this. In Jeremiah 46, 6 through 7, what's being described here is Pharaoh Necho's destruction at Carchemish in 605 B.C., remember, by Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what it says. It says, quote, "'Let not the swift man flee,' nor the mighty man escape in the north besides the river Euphrates. They have stumbled and fallen. Now, verse 7 of Isaiah 46, it says, Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers whose waters rage about? Okay, now stop there. The waters surging or raging about there has to do with, not with Yahweh, but it has to do with the army of Nebuchadnezzar. So notice Nebuchadnezzar's army, therefore, is likened to a, a great flood, okay? So that could be a possible illusion. Now, somebody in here I gave, oh, I know, it was Norm. Do you have the mic? I knew, okay, good. Can you read, everyone turn your Bibles to Nahum 1.8, and we'll have you just pause for a second, Norm. Yeah, <laughs> one of the Old Testament prophets, yes. By the way, Nahum, what he wrote about was the destruction of Assyria. The repentance was short-lived, and Assyria certainly was judged by, again, Babylon, and it was ultimately by God. Notice in Nahum 1.8, this prophecy is declared. Go ahead and read that, Norm. But with an overflowing flood, he will make complete end of its sight, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Yeah, so notice like an overwhelming flood there's going to be destruction upon the Assyrians at the hands, of, what, at the hands mm-hmm. of Yahweh, ultimately, but the Babylonians is the tool. So, again, there's another reference in which the nation's armies are likened to a flood that destroys. So, is it possible that that's what John implies here? I think it is. Okay, So, I'll just tell you, at the end of the day, I think it's probably figurative, although we can't rule out a literal interpretation either. Okay, so perhaps John is alluding to these Old Testament passages in which an army is likened to a flood. That would probably be my druthers, but perhaps he's referring to an actual flood that somehow Satan would use to try to wipe out Israel. Okay, it's one or the other, all right? But notice the result. God supernaturally helps. It says, The earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon fails at wiping out Israel that's being protected by God in the wilderness. Verse 17, notice in the red, what's the reaction? So the dragon, that's Satan, was enraged with the woman Israel and went off to make war with the rest of her children. Now, the other thing we have to wrestle with is what are the rest of her children, the rest of the children of Israel? Okay, well, one way we could interpret this is to say, well, these are Gentile believers, The only problem with that is, notice here, we have what's called a genitive of source. In verse 17, it says, the rest of her children, okay? The her here is a reference to Israel. And if Israel is the source, it's more than likely physical descendants. Now, as a careful reader of the book of Revelation, we should note that after the work of Antichrist and the false prophet in Revelation 13, The 144,000 Jews who keep the commandments of God, as you see mentioned down below, are going to be supernaturally preserved as a sign that God keeps a remnant of Israel. Yes, Eric.
1: (laughs) So I was just thinking, as a careful reader, I just kind of, I was thinking along the lines of, seek and you'll find knock and the door will be opened and i was thinking you know how so many people they get it wrong and i was thinking along the lines of well the source of knowledge is truly god and it's the spirit of god that gives knowledge to whom he's opened their eyes and you know but i was just kind of thinking along the lines of even though we're seeking and we're finding the source behind it is always god to who finds the truth but just kind of a thought with some people that seek and it kind of reminded me of um Back And I think it's Ecclesiastes or Proverbs where he talks about God thwarts the plans of the, you know, I forget how it says it, the wise or something. But, you know, even, even the best efforts of man, apart from God, I mean, I look at how far off some of them come. But, you know, he does, yeah. uh, when it says seek and you will find, he does promise.
0: Yeah, amen. So what's interesting is we have to reconcile in one sense, no one seeks for God, no, not one in Romans 3. And yet, those who seek will find. And so how do we reconcile this ability to seek and this inability to seek after God? And the way we reconcile that, I think, is we see the the need for regeneration is perhaps what you're alluding to, in that God brings to saving faith people that he's chosen before the foundation of the world, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1. They're enabled to believe, and therefore, they now can seek. Okay, so the power is always gods to save in your right you and i would be in left field away from the promises of god uh, not knowing god if it were not for the power of his spirit is that a fair summary okay very good yes yep very good um now oh one thing i wanted to mention thank you for that eric i wanted to mention this idea of the remnant surviving okay God has never promised when he says all Israel will be saved in Romans eleven twenty six. 26. He's not implying, Paul, or God who speaks through him, he's not implying that every ethnic Israelite will be saved just because they are born an ethnic Israelite. What Paul is referring to is that one day, one day as a nation, all of Israel will come to saving faith. But it's always seen as a remnant. And I want you to see this remnant idea That's in, by the way, Isaiah, or excuse me, Romans 9 through Romans 11. But I want you to see this remnant idea played out in the Old Testament. And it also plays out now in the book of Revelation, that when Israel is brought into the wilderness, it's not the vast majority, but in fact it's a minority that's going to be saved. And I want to show you where we actually get a little bit more evidence of this back in Zechariah chapter 13. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9 very interesting passage. Again, Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9. Please turn to that. Yeah, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. We'll begin in verse 7 here. This passage, by the way, is tied to the day of the Lord. But as you'll see, there's both a near and a far element to it. Verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd... And against the man my associate declares Yahweh of hosts. Now, very interesting. Stop there. This associate, the term that's used in Hebrew, implies that it's a close relative. Okay, now why is that significant? Because whoever this is, he's related to Yahweh. (laughs) Well, I'm not related to Yahweh. Are you? Biologically or anyway? Well, this is the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. He's the associate. So he's bringing in his shepherd, the associate. But notice it says... Strike the shepherd, so this is the Messiah, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Stop. That's fulfilled in the first advent of Christ according to Jesus' own words in Mark fourteen twenty-seven that he gives at the Lord's Supper. Okay? Now, that shouldn't surprise us. Remember Bob was giving a message where he talked about how in Luke chapter 4... Jesus is before his hometown synagogue, and he opens up Isaiah 61, and it talks about how the Messiah would be anointed to preach good news to the poor. Well, that's only a portion of Isaiah 61. Then it goes on to say and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance of God. Well, Jesus leaves off with just the the favor of our Lord. He doesn't mention the vengeance of God. Why? Because that's left for the second advent. We have the same thing going on here. We have the first advent mentioned, and that's through verse 7. And then when we get into verse 8, he blends it with the second advent. Okay, notice he says, It will come about in all the land, declares Yahweh, that two parts, now he's talking about Israel, two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third, there's the remnant, will be left in it. So stop, only a third of Israel is going to be saved through this future time period. It's not the vast majority. It's a remnant. He says, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now stop there. What's very interesting is you and I are living in this fallen world. You're the remnant as well. And God is using all the trials and tribulation, the fire, not to destroy you, But to show that your faith is genuine we see this in first and second peter so that you will persevere into the kingdom okay so in a sense god is doing for you now in this age what he's going to do for israel in the 70th week he's using the trials and tribulations of this world to refine you like fire well now he's going to shift his attention the 70th week of daniel and he's going to refine the remnant of israel like fire and why isn't it you because you're in heaven You've been raptured. Are you with me? So this is Israel-centric, but again, it's a remnant that's going to be brought through. And I think this is synonymous with what we read about here in Revelation chapter 12. It's happening in this last three and a half years. Now, again, I'm claiming that the 144,000 are these children, the rest of the children of Israel. Notice at the end of verse 17, after the red, it says they're the ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Commandments of God testimony of Jesus. I think both of those should be seen as what are called subjective genitives. We have two choices. They're either objective genitives, meaning that it's the commandments about God and the testimony about Jesus, or it's a subjective genitives, meaning they come from God and from Jesus to the servants. And I think it's the latter. That's the focus here in Revelation. Okay, so these are subjective genitives. And obviously, who's being described here, I think, is the 144,000 who are faithful to God. And we'll see them come up again in Revelation 4, chapter 14. Now, let's finish then. We're going to finish actually Rome, uh, Revelation 12. Can you believe it? Praise be to God, there are miracles still today. All right. Notice here, verse 131. Now, let me before I even read this, I want you to realize that if you have the NRSV or the Net Bible, there's a discrepancy on how to end chapter 12. Okay, so for example, the... NRSV and the Net Bible have a 1218. Okay, it's the same amount of material, exact, identical material, but the NRSV and the Net Bible, there may be more, have a Revelation 1218. Well, the NASB and others like the ESV go from 1217 to 131A. Are you with me? But it's the same material, they just number it differently. So I just wanted to point that out. So notice here, Revelation 13one ai I'm using the NASB as my default It says, and the dragon, that's Satan again, stood on the sand of the seashore. Now, we're being set up for the next chapter, chapter 13. I know technically we're in chapter 13, but I'm talking about the rest of it. The Satan is standing on the sea of the, or the sands of the seashore. Why is he positioned there? Because he has been thwarted by the power of God, the last plan that the dragon Satan has is to bring in his two cohorts, the beast and the false prophet. The beast comes up out of where? The sea. The The last grasp that Satan has to try to destroy God's promises is by bringing in a false trinity. Satan is likened to the father, the antichrist, obviously to the second person, the trinity, the true Christ. And you have the false prophet who acts as a perversion of the Holy Spirit. And so the last gasp of Satan is to bring in this false trinity. And this false trinity is going to arise, first and foremost, from the sea. Okay, that's what we're going to come to. Now, we've got 10 minutes, and I think we may be able to get to it, but I want to show you kind of a summary of what Satan has done thus far in Revelation 12 to kind of help get our minds around the flow of John's thought. Revelation 12, 3 through 4, we saw in this chapter, Satan was trying to wipe out Israel and the Messiah. And so from Revelation 12, 1 through 5, you're taking huge sweeps of history. John was showing us a panorama that Satan has always tried to wipe out Israel and the Messiah. But lo and behold, God is faithful to his promises, and he brings Messiah anyway. He's able to thwart Satan well, then in Revelation 12, 7 through 8, Satan wages war in heaven with Michael. And we said that's going to happen in the future, in the future day of the Lord, according to Daniel chapter 12. Okay, so that's in the future. That's in the second advent of the Messiah. Revelation twelve nine, Satan is thrown down to the earth. That's in our future. Right now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But what? None of his accusations have any merit. Why? Because we've been... We've been put under the blood of the Lamb when you and I trusted upon Jesus Christ. But there's a day that's coming in the future where He's going to be thrown down. Heaven rejoices, but the earth, woe to them! This is going to be the last three and a half years, the time period that has been unparalleled in human history. Um, literally, all hell is going to break loose, and I'm not—I'm I'm, just—that's a good way of thinking of it, because Satan comes down to earth. Okay, then Revelation 12:15 through 16. Satan pursues Israel for the last three and a half years. That's Jacob's great distress. Revelation 12, 17, Satan pursues the 144,000. That's the rest. And we'll see them survive on Revelation 14. And then finally, what you have in this verse, again, some have 1218, but here I'm following the NASB. Revelation 13:1A, Satan is on the sand of the seashore. Because from the sea, the abyss, comes the nations that Satan has tried to use to thwart God's promises. But also from the abyss comes the ultimate demonic one, the Antichrist, the false trinity that's trying to, trying to usurp what God is doing. So as you and I then transition into Revelation 13, we should have on our minds that this really is the last gasp of Satan, the false trinity trying to destroy what God is doing okay now I've got some more slides for us but we only have five minutes left does anybody have any comments or questions or ideas Bob
2: I want to see if my voice works okay warm it up um, interestingly the accuser of the brethren Satan uh, accused them before God night and day Yes. and back in Job we have the sons of God coming before yes. God. Satan is with them. Yeah. Okay. So Satan mm-hmm. is there in his divine counsel, always attacking us. Right. Exactly. Okay. And then it says, and they overcame them, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah.
0: And that's the gospel.
2: And that's the gospel. The people that email me have been listening to these uh, um, exorcists
0: Yeah.
2: well they take blood to be an utterance mm. okay and so they say if you want the demons to go out you gotta plead the blood over the person and then they start screaming the word blood mm. Right. thinking that the demons get upset when they hear it yeah and they're missing the whole point. Exactly. They don't get the idea that Satan's accusation before God against us is based on our own sin. Right. And God's justice. Right. God cannot lie. God said the soul that sins must die.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: And so Satan would say they must die. Look at the sinners. Amen. And the sinner is saying, I stand before God only because of the blood of Jesus, being he died for my sins. Exactly. Once well for all, said. the just for the unjust, in order to bring me to God. In today's sermon, I'm dealing with abiding in Christ so that we won't shake uh shrink away in shame at his coming. Amen. Okay? And we have boldness. Greek parousia. And it's only because of what Christ did for us yes. that two things are true. We can be bold when we go to the throne of grace and we can be assured that Satan cannot harm us. Wow. Because Praise of Amen. what Christ did for us.
1: Amen.
2: And so... I have to, week by week by week, help persons go from a pagan worldview to a Christian worldview. Yeah, yeah. Okay, or sometimes they call it the warfare worldview. Yes, that's I. Or providential. Right. And convince them that God's in charge of His own universe. Right. And they tend to think, by bad teaching, God withdrew, and in us and Satan. Just duke it out. Or duking it out for who's going to prevail. Right. And they get these verses totally confused. Right. But it's very, very difficult to convince them. Right. They've been told by all these prophets, apostles, TV preachers, uh, traveling evangelists, that this is the way it is. And so I'm trying to convince them. That the blood of Jesus is the price he paid for our sins. Amen. Not some magical entity floating around the cosmos.
0: Exactly. Thank
2: you. You know, last week and I'm sure
0: most of you were here, but for those of you who weren't, we talked about this concept of the blood of the Lamb is a it's an alliterate it's what's called a synecdoche. Okay. Now what in the world is a synecdoche? Let me try to write this. I'm going to run out of room. Synecdoche, you can look it up online. (laughs) But a synecdoche is where one part stands for the whole. If you say um, we're playing ball, a ball is used in baseball, and therefore you're talking about playing baseball as a whole. The blood is just one part of what Jesus does, but it really emphasizes the entire atonement. The idea is that Jesus' death is what saves us because his death is a substitution the sinless one for us who are sinners, okay? So the blood is just one part of that. That's synecdoche. So the reason I say that is sometimes we sing the power of the blood, there's power in the blood, right? And that's a wonderful song. As long as we know, we're not saying that there's magical properties in the blood per se. What we're saying is it's a synecdoche. The blood of Christ is synonymous with the rest of his work, his death on our behalf. Now, uh, Gail asked me a good question last week. What's the difference between synecdoche and metonymy? And I went to answer, and I forgot. But here's what the difference is. Metonymy is very similar. Metonymy, however, is where you use something to reference reference a whole, but it's not necessarily a part of the whole. For example, the Oval Office, you can use the Oval Office as a substitute for the president, although the president doesn't have an Oval Office as part of who he is by nature, whereas blood is part of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. So that's the difference between synecdoche and metonymy. I I looked that up, and thank you for challenging me on that. So thank you, Bob, for pointing that out. Wonderful application and a way to, to transition into the sermon. So with that, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for being a God who is faithful even when we're faithless. I pray, Heavenly Father, as we think about these things, that we become very confident in our interpretation so that we may know that you are faithful to this future time in which you will bring about all of the promises that you foretold in the prophets and through your apostles. We pray, Lord, that we would realize in these dark days that our home is not here, but we're living for the king and the kingdom to come. And I pray that you would press that upon all of our hearts and allow us to know that these things are true even in the dark days to come.